Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Come on in. Welcome back in on 670 The Score. You're listening to Hit and Run. This is your home for baseball on Sunday mornings. And as we were talking last hour about Father's Day memories regarding your fathers and what the best baseball thing they did for you was, I saved this text, and we'll use it uh, before we talk to our next guest. This texter had said, best baseball story with my dad, his excitement had taken me to my first game at Wrigley. As an eight-year-old kid, we watched games on a black-and-white TV. Then he would say, wait till you walk through the tunnel walkway and see the green ivy-covered wall emerge in your sight for the first time. It'll stay with you forever. It did. I never forgot that. Our guest is Paul Goldberger, the architecture critic who has won a Pulitzer Prize for many, many years with The New Yorker and The New York Times and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair these days. And his new book is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. And, Paul, I guess I wanted to start there in asking you about that moment that the texture described that I think a lot of us can relate to when, especially when the ballpark is in the city and you walk through the streets or you take a gritty subway ride and then you walk up the steps once you're in the ballpark and you see that green of the grass and the brown of the dirt and all of a sudden you're not in the city anymore. What? That's a pretty special part of the ballpark experience, uh, architecturally speaking. Isn't it? Totally, absolutely. You, you you just described it as well as I possibly could, actually. And I had that same experience myself. You know, I, I grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey, um, and I remember my father took me to Yankee Stadium. Uh, I, I had my mother had been a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Uh, but I had never gone to Ebbets, and it was by then too late. And uh, so all, all that was left, if you were a kid growing up in that area at that time, was, uh, was Yankee Stadium. And I remember being taken there and, and having exactly the experience you described. You know, we, we went through the city, and we're, then we entered this enormous structure, go through the tunnel, <laughs> and then wham, there is the greenest, most perfect lawn that I had ever seen in my life. And I grew up in the suburbs, so, you know, I knew from lawns. Everyone had a lawn. It was not a big deal, but there was no lawn like this one. And the juxtaposition of this intense, grand, very urban structure and the most beautiful, natural thing I'd ever seen stayed with me absolutely. I mean, it, it was driving me to write this book, uh, you know, more than half a century later. It's quite something. Paul Goldberger, the Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic, has written about ballparks. So, so, so what is it about ballparks? And is it, is it I, I think you, you've talked about the magic of combining the urban and the rural right. 
Absolutely. In yes. one space. Is, is that what has drawn you to it and, wh- and why you think it's such an important well, part of quite, our history? Quite a few things have drawn me to it. And okay. some of it, of course, is my own memories of it. And by the way, I, I would say that although um, Yankee Stadium was the, the ballpark that my father first took me to, uh, my, one of my sons I took to Wrigley, actually. I took him with me to Chicago on a business trip when he was about five, and we went to Wrigley Field. So he had that, ex- even as a New York kid, he had the Wrigley Field experience first, which was really wonderful. And, uh, but what drew me to it was partly that, partly or just the sense that the baseball park is one of the greatest forms of American public space. You know, it's as important to a city like Chicago as Grant Park and the Lakefront and Jackson Park and so forth. It's as important to New York as Central Park. It was part of the whole history of the city. And through it, we can really see how Americans have treated their cities, what they think of them, how they viewed them. It's a kind of mirror to all of American culture over the last 150 years. Um, as well as, of course, telling you an awful lot about baseball and how it's evolved as a game. Hmm. And all of that stuff interests me, and I decided at some point it would be fun. I've always loved baseball. Why not put that together with my love of architecture and try to make a book out of it? So here it is. It's interesting. The book is called, uh, is called Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. You know, when Camden Yards showed up and it was followed by a bunch of ballparks um, from the same architecture firm. I, right. I, yes, I, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and they, they, they were clearly trying to hearken back to old ballparks and with, with nooks and crannies and individualities and yet still have the modern convenience. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful goal, architecturally yeah, yeah. speaking. Well, it, absolutely. And, in fact, it worked. You know, I mean, to, to understand that, you have to, of course, remember how bad a lot of the ballparks from the middle of the 20th century were. I mean, what I call in the book the concrete donuts, those big, round things, most of which were designed for football and baseball combined use. And a lot of them were in the suburbs, surrounded by acres of asphalt and parking. It somehow seems to me to be a sort of just poetic justice almost that one of the first was um, the one Metropolitan Stadium built outside of Minneapolis in uh, the 50s uh, in Bloomington, Minnesota. That eventually became the site of the Mall of, Mall of America, the biggest <laughs> shopping mall in the United States, which is kind of really what it wanted to be anyway. So <laughs> baseball really does belong in the city. So... Um, uh, Camden Yards in Baltimore in 1992 was this very conscious emerge, let's say, out of this very conscious recognition that most of that stuff had been terrible. People didn't like them. It, you lost that individuality and eccentricity almost. It's so important to all great ballparks and connection to the city of which they're a part. And they decided to build an in-city ballpark that would reconnect to the city and be unique to Baltimore be smaller, be baseball only, not football, and um, have a certain amount of idiosyncrasy to it. Uh, and they did it, but as you point out, you're absolutely right, also have the uh, modern amenities that um, people have come to expect. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly reasonable to want to have a lot of nice places to eat in a ballpark. It's also perfectly reasonable to decide to think it's not a bad idea to have enough bathrooms, <laughs> which the old ballparks never did. So, uh, you know, and the great thing in the last few years is that we've recognized that. We've also 
upgraded and restored and improved those few very old ballparks that we've managed to keep and bring them a little bit more up to date, Wrigley being a a great example, of course. Well, let's talk about that uh, because I I saw what happened in Boston with Fenway Park as Mm -hmm. they modernized, they monetized, they added so many different spaces where they could charge a little more and make it, you know, sell a few more beers and have more signage and advertising but I think they did a pretty masterful job of maintaining the uh, the character and the appeal of the ballpark. Um, and then we got to watch Wrigley moment by moment here in this town and dissect it as they have been trying to do the same thing. And I wonder if you visited and, and your thoughts on, on those two and, and sure. if, if they've been successful transformations. I think they've been mostly successful. Um, I mean, first, you know, we're lucky that they both were kept. Uh, I only wish that Ebbets Field had been kept. And also, I wish Tiger Stadium in Detroit had been kept, which is less of an excuse for losing, because by the time Tiger Stadium was torn down, we really recognized the value of historic stadiums, right. historic ballparks, and we, we kind of knew better, which people didn't really in the 1950s when Ebbets was lost. But anyway, specific to Wrigley, um, I would I would be happier with a, maybe a little less digital signboards and stuff like that in it, mm-hmm. but by and large, the essential quality of Wrigley has been kept. I think they were also brilliant in a lot of the underground additions. You know, all the new training facilities and locker rooms and so forth, which are great. Um, you know, you can't blame teams for wanting something a little better than a high school locker room. Which, which is what, kind of what old, old Wrigley had. Yeah. And so, but, but by expanding it underground, they've been able to add those facilities without fundamentally changing the feel of the ballpark for the fans. Um, there's a, you know, they've also done a certain amount of development outside the gate. Uh, the Hotel Zachary across the street, the office building that the team occupies, uh, those are okay. I, I think if they help maintain the ballpark, uh, it's worth it, even though, frankly, you know, I I think they push Wrigleyville toward being a, a more generic neighborhood than it had been, mm-hmm. and I think that's a, a loss. Um, but, you know, maybe it's a fair trade-off, because the reality is the economics of professional sports are so different today that uh, I don't entirely blame an owner for wanting to monetize what they can. Uh, and the fact that at Wrigley at least... The ballpark itself is preserved, mostly restored. Again, we could differ about a few of the details, but yeah. by and large, it's right. Um, you know, if this is the price we have to pay, uh, you know, I'm in. I'd rather that than if the whole thing had been torn down and started all over again. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's fair. And what the Ricketts family did in terms of scooping up all the rooftops and making yes. it theirs and, and, and taking control of, of the area, it is uh, often the price of doing business. Um, it, it is. And, and, you know, in the end of the day, you know, yes, we might wish it to be otherwise. But I think we also have to make a distinction between nostalgia that is only nostalgia hmm. and finding a practical way to keep as much as we possibly can given today's economic realities. And I think they have tried to do the latter. They have tried to do that. And so I'll give them credit for that. Uh, Paul, you know, I I think a lot of people don't know or or have forgotten about Chicago that way before the Cubs and the White Sox, uh, baseball 
there were teams representing neighborhoods, companies, yes. churches. Totally. By 1867, there were 45 different teams competing in this city, like teams calling themselves the Logan Squares and the West Ends, and mm-hmm. and then the Sears Roebucks ha- had, a, had a team and, and, and stuff like that. What were those spaces like in terms of, you know, it, there, there wasn't a lot to them, really. No, they were mostly pretty casual fields, uh, often on the outskirts of the city. Um, because, of course, even, in the, even back then, you know, uh, central land was, was expensive. And so ballparks tended to be kind of on the edge as the city was developing, but then it often grew around them. Um, this, New York had a similar pattern, so did Boston, of lots and lots of small local teams that competed against each other on sort of sand lots or, or open, you know, empty lots, open space. Hmm. In New York, they often played at a place called Elysian Fields in New Jersey across the Hudson River in Hoboken uh, until somebody decided to build an actual small ballpark with a fence around it and charge money, which only began when it be- began to become a spectator sport. You know, those very early years, the sport existed for the amateur players themselves. Then it began to evolve into a spectator sport, which in turn led to its becoming a professional sport. Um, but that, that was gradual through the 19th century. Hmm. I, you know, the, the last thing I wanted you to, to, to tell folks about is this concept of, of the infinite outfield. And, yes. I, and, and I keep imagining it as you talk about those ball, ball they're not ballparks, so those ball fields. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a thing where there were no fences. Were there ropes for home runs? Was there nothing? What, what were we looking uh, at? I think at the very earliest time there was nothing. And, of course, the rules themselves were evolving rapidly through them. And, and, you know, not only was baseball played in different cities, it was sometimes played with slightly different rules. They were codified um, in a series of meetings in New York by representatives of different teams um, in the you know, mid-19th century. Uh, but the, the leagues only began to be developed a little bit later when uh, intercity train travel was practical because only then was it possible for a team in New York to play a team in Cleveland or Chicago or St. Louis. Hmm. Um, you could, that's why the, you know, they were all the various small local teams playing each other. But then things, things sort of rose to a different, a different level later, later in the century, hand-in-hand hand with intercity train travel. You know, the, um, baseball needed the trains. The trains did not need baseball to grow big and powerful economically. But the, but baseball needed them, and uh, and so it happened. But the uh, the, the infinite outfield um, is really just almost conceptually one of the wonderful things about baseball. Mm. I mean, we know it's not truly infinite, of course. And <laughs> somewhere somebody would always put a fence or some, and, or as the ballparks began to grow larger, put bleachers out there. But um, the fact that the rules don't specify anything in the same way that baseball can be, is played in, in infinite time. Um, again, we know it's not truly, uh, no game is going to last 24 hours, but the, the, the idea philosophically almost, that, it, that it's kind of indefinite. We're used to so many definite things in sports, but of course in baseball, only the infield, only the diamond is precisely demarcated. Mm. The rest of it is all indefinite. And the time and space are both indefinite. There's something very beautiful about that. And I love the idea that the ballpark in some way reflects that with the big structure, the very firm, definite thing, 
sort of around home plate, and then in the outfield generally is something much lower so that you feel that space just flows above it, continuing in, on into wherever. Um, that's why, for me, a fully enclosed stadium is never the right place for baseball. It's right for football, hmm. but it's never right for baseball because you want to feel, you know, at least in a sort of horseshoe shape, you see, you see the sky going out and you feel the space extending out beyond. And that's very important to just the, the underlying almost philosophical idea of baseball. Uh, Not that somebody's really going to hit a ball into the infinite, just that it kind of extends out there just like your imagination. Uh, Absolutely. We we don't know. You might see the highest pop-up in the history of the game at a moment's moment's notice. This guy can just keep going. Paul, I really enjoyed the conversation. I did, too. the The book is Ballpark Baseball in the American City. If you need a Father's Day gift, head over to a bookstore before you go see your pop later tonight. Thank you. It is a great Father's Day present. Thanks a lot. Great to talk. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's Paul Goldberger, a Pulitzer Prize-winning architectural critic, and um, it's a pretty cool book, Uh, Ballpark Baseball in the American City. It is 670 the score. It is hit and run. I'm Matt Spiegel here with you. Uh, And guess what? In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing a live hit and run at the Chicago Dogs game. That's Sunday, June 30th. And if you right now are caller 6 or caller 7, you will join me as I broadcast Hit and Run live at the Chicago Dogs game Sunday, June 30th. Winners receive a pair of tickets to the game, a Chicago-style hot dog for lunch, and a chance to throw out the first pitch. It is brought to you by the Chicago Dogs, where every day is Fan Appreciation Day. When we come back, we'll make sure you know everything about what you might have missed late night in L.A. at Dodger Stadium for a terrific ball game and a big Cubs win. And there's a, an incredible moment from the radio booth that we have to bring you. And we'll do it next on 670 The Score. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I would throw that slider in the dirt or, or down by the shoe tops and see if you can get them to swing through it. Here's the 1-2. Swing and a miss. There it is. And the Cubs win. Exactly the pitch you call for, Ron. The low slider. It may have bounced in the dust. Caratini scoops it out and then tags Beatty. Cubs win by a score of 2-1. to one. What a ball game. That's the way it finished last night, late at Dodger Stadium. 51,000 people on site for a really, really good ball game. This hour of Hit and Run on the Score is brought to you by Team Hochberg. Visit their new website, 56david.com. That's 56david.com. And U.S. Open coverage is brought to you by the BMW Championship at Medina Country Club, August 13th through August 18th, 2019. Visit bmwchampionship.com. How did it end? Why did it end that way? It was one nothing after you Darvish had pitched beautifully, except for a solo homer he gave up to Alex Verdugo on a first-pitch ambush fastball. And he got to the ninth inning. The Dodgers' excellent closer, Kenley Jansen, one of the best in the business, um, was throwing a little softer than normal. 
down at 89, 90, 90 uh, mile per hour. And he walked Chris Bryant. Um, and then Anthony Rizzo came up. The count was 2-0, and and here's what Rizzo did. Rizzo drives one in the air to deep right field. This ball's got a chance. Gone. Anthony Rizzo gives the Cubs a 2-1 lead here in the top of the ninth inning. It landed in the Cub bullpen. And listen to these Cub fans at Dodger Stadium. ton of them there. Uh, that's Rizzo with the go-ahead home run. Our Chris Kampka, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago, joins us weekly for Cam Connections here on Hit and Run in the first hour. He shared this. Of Anthony Rizzo's 209 home runs as a Cub, nine of them have put the team ahead in the ninth inning or later. Nine times he's hit a home run that has put the team ahead in the ninth inning or later. The, uh, and I think Sammy Sosa is second on that list, and he hit more than 500 as a Cub. Rizzo's only at 209, and nine of them have been clutch. I am not afraid to use the word clutch in these parts. Not afraid whatsoever. Now, what is clutch? What is clutch? I'll tell you what clutch is. Clutch is just being yourself, staying yourself when the moment gets bigger. I will accept that as a definition for clutch. Just merely keeping yourself mindful and in the moment and present when the moment gets bigger, as opposed to crumbling, which is choke. I think we can all agree that choke exists, where you crumble and you got nothing. In a big, big moment, you're off your game and you're, you're rattled and so you don't perform your best. If we can agree that choke exists, then I think we have to agree that clutch exists, even if you want to define it as staying level and exactly the same. The bottom of the hour was brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. The Western Conference champion Chicago Wolves would like to thank their loyal fans for making this 25th anniversary so special. Thank you and see you in October. If you missed this moment from the radio booth, Zach Withers, our, our fine producer, went back and grabbed it. And I really appreciate it because I, I, I didn't hear it. I actually saw it in the condensed game that I always watch just to make sure I didn't miss anything on MLB.com. There, uh, Max Muncy was at the plate. It's the seventh inning, the bottom of the seventh at Dodger Stadium. I believe there's one out. Max Muncy at the plate. And here's what it sounded like last night on 670, the score. Muncy fouls it back right down below us. And that ball bounces up into the booth. And Ron Coomer makes a barehanded grab. And Ron is going to toss the ball out to the stands. fan I did not see Ron you'll have to let me know if a fan caught it or not a fan made an error it hit him in the hands here's the one one now to Muncie on the way her ball drops low but it hit an area right in front of our booth popped up into the booth Ron made a barehanded grab he then stood up and graciously tossed the ball out into the stands and you say it was dropped but you e still you still get an assist. EF error fan. I gotcha. Yeah. Here comes the two one now to Muncie. You get an assist on that though. I'll take Down the twenty the instead. <laughs> <laughs> Three balls and a strike on Muncie. <laughs> 
like the ovation they gave you, Ron. I think a lot of fans remember when you played for these Dodgers. Oh, I was a big hit here in L.A. Gone but not forgotten. <laughs> now the 3-1 to Muncie. And that's strike two called. thing that was impressive the ball hit down below us I, I thought it was out of yep. sight out of mind next thing you know it popped right up into our booth that ball will find you on it <laughs> you, you never gave up on it that's yep. what I like about the play be careful and the three two from Darvish Muncie strikes out swinging Darvish kind of points up toward our booth as if to say Ron you inspired me on that strikeout thank you very much might just be my imagination. It, it could be. Tremendous. That's last night in the radio booth. Uh, Coomer's the goods. And obviously, Pat, with the, the incredibly dry humor. Um, I, I've got an occasion to do pre- and post-game a little bit. And so you get to hang around with, with Coomer. He is, is more brilliant than you could ever know in terms of baseball. In terms of seeing what's happening and calling it and predicting it and Stuff like that. And sometimes he doesn't bring it to air, but he'll lean back between innings and just rattle off some stuff. And you're like, yep. And then here it goes. Here it happens. It's amazing. And then, Pat, someone asked me uh, just the other day, hey, so what's Pat Hughes like? And I said, well, you know, uh, when Pat Hughes talks to you about baseball and it sounds like this, that's the way he sounds as he talks about everything. And I appreciate that and understand the man is the same whether he's on the air or not. Matt, it's good to see you. Would you like to sit down and have a sandwich here at, at lunch? Yeah, so uh, indeed, uh, Pat, is, Pat is just Pat. Uh, I'm going to be doing uh, pre and post another couple of times, not this coming week, but the week after. Uh, the Braves series, I believe it is, uh, Monday and Tuesday, 23rd and 24th, or maybe it's Tuesday and Wednesday. I don't know. You'll, you'll be listening because you listen to Cubs games if you do. Uh, huge, huge start. For you, Darvish, last night. And we need to discuss, as I did at the top of the show, and perhaps you missed it. But here's the deal with you, Darvish. He is a very emotional, sensitive guy. You want to call him fragile and rip him, that's up to you. I don't feel the need to do so. But he is at his best, like a lot of emotional people are, when he is completely open and out front with whatever is on his mind. He is dealing with it head on. It's interesting because Joe Madden has said as much a few times about you and how he appreciates this about you. You uh, talks about what's going on in there. He doesn't hold back. This is Joe talking. He knows that he had to get by certain hurdles. And I love the fact that he addresses them straight up. He does not sidestep them. He doesn't tap dance them. Highly accountable. I've always said a mind once stretched has a difficult time going back to its original form. This situation with him back to Dodger Stadium, bad moment that had happened in the past in his career. All of a sudden, he's able to put that in the rear view mirror when he really believes in himself and he has confidence in himself. He is one of the best pitchers in baseball. That's the guy you saw last night. That is the guy you are capable of seeing that he is capable of showing you and at times has shown you over the last seven or eight starts. He has been calm and comfortable. Over the last seven or eight starts, he struck out 28% of his batters over the last eight starts. The ERA is under four. You look through the game log, you can find success of different kinds of stripes in all those starts, different ways that it manifested, and none of them were perfect. 
Uh, last night was easily his best start as a, uh, as a Cub. And it was his best start like that since August of 2017. That's the first time Darvish has allowed no more than a run and had at least 10 strikeouts through seven innings since August of 2017. That was his Dodgers debut after being traded by the Rangers that summer. But you, Darvish, has to, has to deal openly with the, the travails of being a pro and of being him. He's just him. He made comments on Friday about what it was like to be there, called last year's visit to Dodger Stadium the worst day of his life. And if you remember, that's when he threw a bullpen session and, and, and realized he wasn't going to be able to go and shut it down. How much of last year was physical? How much was mental? I don't know. I don't know. But I know the mental component was certainly in there last year, and it's a shame that it was a lost season in this big contract. But this season is not a lost one. And, in fact, he has arrived. He said about last night, you Darvish, after the game last night, this was a really important moment in my life. I think now I can move forward. I pitched good here. And what he's talking about is failing so hugely in the World Series there a couple of times. You may wish that he was not so sensitive. You may wish that uh, he was, you know, uh, that he could have gotten here faster. But you got to deal with what you have, right? You have to be honest and open and deal, especially as an organization, with what you have. And they've gotten him there. Whether it's the mental skills department with Bob Tewksbury and John Baker, whether it's Joe Madden, whether it's the teammates, a lot of it is you. Why you? You Darvish. Anthony Rizzo, interestingly, had some stuff to say last night about Darvish and just how he feels with the teammates, how the teammates feel with him, and that you, Darvish, has made some uh, steps in kind of working on the relationship with his teammates. Uh, apparently, after a start in early May when he was bad, he, as he left um, the clubhouse, he, he, or he went by the, the batting cage and Javier Baez was in there, and he went in there and he, and he apologized to Javi. He said he apologized on behalf of the team or on behalf of himself, and told Javi to pass it on to the team. He apologized for putting them in such a difficult spot. That kind of accountability that you can have with your teammates, it goes a long way. And as I'm saying it, I'm remembering his start against the Reds at Wrigley Field when he went seven innings plus. After that seventh inning, which was his best of the day, bad sixth, and then he threw a great seventh, striking out Yasiel Puig, or getting Puig to fly out, but it was like an eight-pitch inning, I think. As he was walking off, I remember Javier Baez standing um, above the dugout steps and waiting for Darvish to get over there and then giving him the big glove slap on the backside and encouraging him as the crowd was chanting, you, and giving him the love, giving him the encouragement. He needs it from teammates, needs it from fans, needs it from his manager, etc. And now he's getting it, and look how great he was last night. So, big one. Big one for Darvish, as a bunch of them have been recently, and very good to see. And very important, especially in light of the Kyle Hendricks injury news. Kyle Hendricks is uh, on the injured list and is going to miss at least one start. Who knows how much? There's three weeks between now and the All-Star break. I could conceivably see them trying to buy Hendricks this entire month because they said the shoulder inflammation was keeping him the other night from full extension of his pitches and really kind of reaching that arm forward at the end of his fastball and change up deliveries. And that's what gives his pitches the, uh, the great late movement that causes swing and miss stuff. So 
we'll see how they're going to, uh, to fill that void. Maybe it's Adbert Alzale, who's been really good at AAA of late. He is lined up to be available on Thursday, which would be Hendrick's spot. I think they're going to give Tyler Chatwood a start or two. Um, and, and then Alzale at some point will be up here. But maybe it's just one start for Chatwood. I'm just guessing here. But I, I, I think they will take this opportunity of the off day tomorrow to buy a fifth day of rest for John Lester. Um, and, and so I, I think Wednesday night is going to be Chatwood. Maybe it'll be Alzale on Wednesday night. I guess it could be Montgomery, but Alzale, that wouldn't be full rest. It'd be Thursday for him. So just um, if I had to guess, I'm saying Chatwood on Wednesday against Lucas Giolito, who is definitely pitching for the White Sox. That should be fun Wednesday night at Wrigley. Uh, and then Alzale after that. But we'll see. Just a hunch. Just a hunch back at the office. It's 670 the score. It is hit and run you're listening to. I want to talk about a guy I think the White Sox should keep. And I don't know why. Well, I mean, I know why a lot of us have expected them not to. But it's a guy I think they should keep. And I want to discuss it with you on 670 the score. And we'll do a little transition with Nick Shepkowski and Anthony Heron before we get out of here on hit and run. Jose left field. This is another hit. It's up the alleyway. It's past Gardner who has to go till the warning track. And it's an RBI double at 5-1. to one. That's from a couple nights ago. It's the game I was at, the Giolito game against the Yankees, where they just piled on the runs. 10-1 to 1 did the White Sox highlight courtesy of NBC Sports Chicago. It wasn't just Eloy Jimenez with two three-run jacks that night. It was you know, a couple extra things. Tim Anderson hit several balls hard, got on base, I think, three times. And then Jose Abreu right there with the RBI double. And I'm sitting there watching him, and I've had this thought on and off. Why not re-sign Jose Abreu if you can get him at a manageable price? You have all the money for your payroll in the world. You're going to try and go after Anthony Rendon and you know some of the huge, huge free agent names like you just did last year and you missed out on, uh, on, on Manny Machado. But you're going to sign a few as you move forward and try to round out this roster. I know that Abreu, this is his moment to try and, and cash in. He's 33 years old. The list of free agent first basemen this upcoming offseason is unimpressive. There's several people with club options. Anthony Rizzo's club option will be picked up. I don't know if Ryan Zimmerman's club option will be picked up. Probably not because it's 18 mil. There's a $2 million buyout. And, and then there's not a lot, but... So, so it could be that the market just takes you out of, out of it. But look at the value, or lack thereof, of first baseman who can hit with power. Okay? Because Edwin Encarnacion goes from the Mariners to the Yankees last night. The Mariners and the Yankees are splitting the money. Okay? They're splitting the money, and, and the prospect is that the prospect going back to the Mariners is a right-handed pitching prospect who's pretty low in their system rankings. I think he's number 27 in their rankings, and they have good rankings. He's the only player going, and then they're splitting the money. And you knew this before that deal, though, and don't just focus on that deal. First basemen with power are, are not super valuable. They, they, they find themselves underwhelmed when it comes to getting offers on the free agent market. And Abreu 
is a wonderful guy in that clubhouse, an incredibly solid veteran for all these young Latin players who are there with more coming and has produced year after year after year. You know, let Yonder Alonso go. He's got a $9 million club option with a $1 million buyout. Let him go. And try to re-sign Jose Abreu for a couple of years. Maybe, and remember, his relationship with the organization is really, really good and really healthy. Remember Jerry Reinsdorf made him a ring for hitting for the cycle? Something like that? I, I mean, goodness. I, I, think, I think Jose Abreu would, uh, would give you uh, the kind of deal that makes sense for you as you round things out for your roster. But then again, I'm that guy who says they should also keep Alex Colome this coming, uh, this coming trade deadline because you've got him for one mere year of control, and then you're going to need a closer next year. 670, the score where, is where you are. It's hit and run. Um, I heard this stat last night, and I was very surprised that the Cubs are now just 1-23 and when trailing after six innings. Last night was their first win. When trailing after six and the entire season, found that surprising. Because I, I think of them as having that comeback DNA. Last year, when trailing after six, they had 12 wins. Year before that, 11 wins. Year before that, 11 wins in 2016. Year before that, 10 wins. So they've never been below double digits. They've got some catching up to do. Last night, their first win when trailing after six. It is hit and run on 670. The score coming up after me. It'll be Anthony Heron. And my man, Nick Shepkowski. Nick Shepkowski is here and joining us in the Culinary Kitchen studio. Happy Father's Day to your father, Shep. Good yes, thing. to him. Yes. Not so much to me. I'm not so celebrating unless having a dog counts. But, no, uh, I'm little, not going to give you that. Little Ned was spoiled this morning. So, uh, yeah. No, but happy, happy Father's Day to my old man, Larry Shepkowski, who I tweeted out a, some not-so-glorified pictures of him coming over and using his afternoons to help me teach me how to be a homeowner. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know. He's been doing good stuff? Been doing good work? I've been trying to learn, but he's been doing a phenomenal job. So, happy Father's That's Day That's awesome. That's awesome. Did he play baseball with you as a kid? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I used to be able to actually hit a knuckleball. Because his shoulder was just shot. He'd throw me BP, he'd throw me batting practice, but his shoulder and arm were just shot, but he could only throw a knuckleball. So I could actually hit a knuckleball as like a 10-year-old, That's awesome. and whatnot. But I was like the only kid that could do it because it's the only pitches I ever saw in BP. <laughs> That's beautiful. I was going to the actual hitting cages like some of the other guys were. I, I, didn't, I didn't really play baseball with my dad, but he taught me like the intellectual part. He taught me the trivia, and you and I have bonded for years on oh, stuff God, like yeah. that. But yeah, he, he's the guy who would sit around and just make me learn stuff and come up with stuff and taught me a love for that. So that's, that's, that's more important to be passed on since I'm not a professional ball player, but I'm a professional baseball talker. Yeah, no one's going to pay any money or I'm not going to make any money throwing a baseball around yeah. or hitting a baseball. So I guess this is the next best thing. Um, on the field today in Cincinnati or is it in Texas? I, I forget where they are, but Delino DeShield Sr. Yeah, I think they're in Cincinnati. I think so. Yeah. He's your third base coach. Um, Delano DeShields Sr. is the first base coach. You know, look, facts are optional, really, when, when it comes, comes down to it. That isn't that big of a deal. He's a base coach. He's the first base coach for the Cincinnati Reds, Delano DeShields Sr. 
And his son, Delino Jr., is starting in center field for Texas. And I love that the manager of Texas said, you know what, I'm going to start a... Like, he had it penciled weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to find a way to get Delino Jr. in. Like, you can let sentimentality win every once in a while. Yeah, that part's cool. Um, when the Cubs were playing the Rangers opening weekend this year, yeah. and he shows up in the starting lineup, I think, on opening day, and you're like, oh, my goodness, God, I'm getting old if... Right? If... Holy cow, Delino DeShield's son is playing. Uh-huh. Then you go to his baseball reference page, you're like, oh, he's been in the league for four years? He's 26? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, my God. It's, he's not so young. It's, like, it, it's everywhere. The, um, Dwight Smith Jr. is another guy yes. that did that. Like, he got off to his hot start, and it was the same way for me. Like, Oh, my God. Travis Sochik wrote a piece on 538 in March about, about debuts. And entering 2019... There have been 44 debuts of children of former big leaguers, and that's tied with the 90s for the most, and they've already had a couple. We've already had Vlad Jr. What's that? Half and, of them have been Blue Jays. Yeah, and Kevin Biggio. Biggio so and this, Chet's coming. This is the busiest decade for debuts of the kids of former major leaguers in the major leagues. So, like, they're, how are they learning? They're imitating each other, you know, imitating dad. There's the specialization. Sometimes the dad is the agent. Bobby Witt Sr. is Bobby Witt Jr.'s agent, so he's getting him in with all the good companies and driveline and, and perfect game and all that stuff. Yeah, it's not a father-son professional um, baseball situation, but Kopech's dad represents him, if I remember correctly. I think you're right. And I thought about calling him today. It, yeah. His story is, is phenomenal. The way that he trained Michael Kopech to do yeah. his thing. All right, you guys are coming up next. Shep, what do you got going on? Uh, Mark Gonzalez is going to join us from L.A., going to get a Sox-Yankees preview on getaway day with Scott Merkin before first pitch down a guaranteed rate field. Going to talk some NBA, too, with the craziness of the trade yesterday Whew. and the draft just a couple days away. Yeah, man, Rich Paul wins the summer. Holy smokes, you're what? not lying. No, right? And and I'm sure there's there's more to come there. LeBron unhappy. that That's not going to last. Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. 670 The Score uh, is where you are. Thank you to Zach Weathers doing a great job producing. Thank you to Paul Goldberger. The book about ballparks is really cool. And thank you to uh, maybe the best cast uh, I've ever booked on the show, my father, Herb Spiegel, which was at the top of the 10 a.m. hour. Have a great Father's Day, everybody. Uh, I'll be back with you next week on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.